Hier komen we in vreemd. My name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag newspaper in Australia. We're recording on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we're recording the show tonight on um, the 11th of November, just in case, because we're talking about a rapidly changing situation. Anything changes. So right now it's 7.45pm <laughs> on the 11th of November. And on the show, as all of our shows do, we will be discussing politics, history, theory, activism from a radical revolutionary socialist perspective. And I'm joined tonight by uh, Liam Ward again. Hi. Hi, Liam. How are you going? Not bad, thank you. And um, our comrade Omar Hassan. And Omar is a Lebanese-Australian socialist activist who is a contributing editor of the socialist journal Marxist Left Review. Welcome, Omar. Hi, Roz. How are you going? I'm very good because the world is on fire um, and it's the fire of struggle. So um, I was just reading Left Voice, which is a website mm-hmm. with a bunch of kind of revolutionary news and whatnot. And they had one of those kind of listicle articles like yeah. we used to get on BuzzFeed. I don't know what's happened to those. You used to be able to write your own listicle, but... They're a bit cliche now, I think. Yeah, I think it's, maybe it's moved on, but... Um, the 11 biggest struggles of the year was the title of this article and uh, those 11 struggles that they listed that have all been taking place or continue to take place in, in 2019 are Haiti, France, uh, Sudan, Algeria, Puerto Rico, Hong Kong, Iraq, Ecuador, Lebanon, Catalonia and um, Chile. So uh, what is going on? on in the world yeah it's an incredible moment start? it's an absolutely incredible moment um and it's sort of really crept up on us um uh i was writing uh, an editorial for the latest edition of the mlr um last night actually and i realized that if we look at it the the these rebellions began some time ago i mean in france the the yellow vest movement was well underway towards the end of last year um and revolutions in sudan and algeria uh, similarly so um, but what you've seen through this year, and, and especially now, is the coalescing of these struggles all around the world with different dynamics and motivations, but kind of unifying themes. And, and it's just a really inspiring time to be um, politically engaged, to see so many people rising up. There's a lot of good YouTube content at the moment for people who like to see riot police running away Absolutely. from protests and mass struggles and tens of thousands of people on the streets. And one of the incredible things about that is you... I see a clip pop up and you're like, wait, I don't know where that is for the first couple of seconds mm. because there's so many different places it could be. That's yeah. a very rare thing for a revolutionary, I think. Yeah, there's so many so many places um, on fire at the moment. And I think it's a real reflection of the, the kind of the long-term impact of the global financial crisis. There's just been, um, there was just enormous economic turmoil created in the aftermath of the GFC 2007, 8, 9. And um, we saw a wave of protests in 2011, which um, unfortunately did not achieve their goals and for a while abated. But now we're seeing the same kind of uh, grievances um, and demands for economic justice and real democracy um, come back to the political scene. And it's wonderful to see. Yeah. Um, mainstream uh, commentators, I guess, are trying to do the same thing that we're doing of thinking, well, where, where does this all come from? And it was quite amazing to see in The Economist um, a while ago, the journalists there quoting 
Sandra Bloodworth's article in Red Flag newspaper. Um, And in that article, she wrote, uh, a common identity is emerging from the turmoil based on a shared sense of rebellious hatred of the rich and powerful imbued with internationalism. So what what do you think she means um, by that exactly? Well, I think all around the world, um, people saw the financial crisis and experienced it and felt it um, in really painful ways. And then um, since then, we've been told that there's been a recovery unfolding um, and the economy has been improving. Um, our lives are supposed to have been getting better. Um, but what's actually happened is there's been a massive transfer of wealth um, from poor people, from working class people to the rich. And so this recovery that we've been told about um, has, has, has been a myth. It's only been a recovery for those in, in power and those with wealth. And so I think enough people have um, gotten jack of the fact that wages have not been rising, the cost of living has been going up. Um, and in, in a range of places, um, the governments have, have introduced specific measures or taxes that have just tipped people over the edge. The, um, I think Omar's right to, to pinpoint it in that sort of, you know, the aftermath of the, of the GFC. One of the other things at play here, I think, though, is that sort of more long-term, I mean, the GFC is a long time ago now too, but, um, you know, one of the slogans that came up from Chile, I remember, was mm. that it's not about 30 pesos, is pesos the right word? Pesos. Pesos, yeah. Uh, it's about 30 years you know, referring to not just the kind of, um, you know, the political legacy of, of, of the dictatorship, etc., but also the, the 30 years of neoliberalism. I think that's part of what we're seeing around the world too. So it's not even just the GFC. It's also that long-term neoliberal, you know, the reaction against neoliberalism. And some of this stuff plays out uh, in places like Hong Kong as well, where mm. um, you might, if you cast your mind back a few, a few months, the, um, the, Beijing, the regime in Beijing... Uh, was so determined to try to make out that that nothing in Hong Kong was actually political. There was no political opposition to their rule. That they, that they were actually putting out the line that this is just about people's economic grievances about the cost mm, of housing. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. And then they rapidly backtracked from that because, you know, that these things merged together so neatly and so cleanly. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of deep-seated resentment all across the world about the rich getting richer and ordinary life, you know, life for ordinary people just getting harder and harder. And at some point, yeah, this was bound to break and we're seeing those fractures now. And it's one of those kind of classic Marxist points about the fact that you can't really separate economics from politics, that all of those kind of crushing neoliberal um, cuts and austerity and all of that combine with people's frustration at the fact that they can see the ruling class and, and the rich maintaining or increasing their wealth. They can see the fact that their politicians are still driving around in fancy cars and all of that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, in Chile in particular, that kind of the um, growing and gaping inequality where the rich have helipads on the top of their expensive houses mm-hmm. and whatever and then down on the streets, um, they want to squeeze a bit more money out of you just to use public transport. And it's kind of like, okay, that is enough, that whole straw that broke the camel's back kind of stuff is really on show. And I think the same in Lebanon in a way with the kind of political factors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the way in which this recovery has been engineered and the whole neoliberal period, as Liam pointed out, has been through squeezing um, working class people uh, in order to transfer wealth to the top. So you've had um, the um, uh, increase in the relative exploitation of labor, which in technical term just means um, workers are producing more stuff, but getting the same or less um, wages in return. Um, and you've also seen the state spend increasingly or decreasing amounts of money um, on the, the social services that people desperately need uh, and instead increasing the amount of money it's spending on subsidies and so on. So 
this process of neoliberalism has been very much a state-driven class war. And it means that when people start resisting, they draw the connections between um, economics and politics very organically. I fully agree with that. And there's not really a kind of um, a position in mainstream politics that has been anything other than neoliberalism. So even the social democrats or the people who've claimed mm. to want to come in and do things differently, people have seen, you know, they may have given some new government an opportunity to do it differently, but nowhere has anything changed. That's so right, yeah. it just drags on and on and on. Um, so one of the other questions politically is around the kind of corruption stuff. Um more or less in certain places, but whether it's a dictatorship or a democratically elected government, um, even places like Lebanon in particular, I was thinking about the frustration with the corruption and one of those things, one of those stories that stuck with me and it's very relevant now, I guess, in Australia with the bushfires that we're seeing that are just incredibly awful. Um, in Lebanon, it was bushfires that were out of season as well. That were one of the things that um, kind of made people really angry with the government. And one of the stories I heard about that was that um, after the last round of bushfires, some people got together to raise money from private individuals, not just not rich people, but anyone who donated money to buy firefighting helicopters, right? Mm. Because the government refused to buy them. And then they got these helicopters, they parked them on a an airstrip somewhere and they basically fell apart over the time over the years Mm. that they were sitting there because they wouldn't even pay for them to be maintained so these fires broke out people were like okay now you can use the helicopters we paid for and they said oh no we can't sorry we haven't fixed them we didn't have a budget for that so it's just like it's the same in australia when you think about the cuts to the fire service that really frust you know it's a life or death kind of thing well, just two weeks ago in New South Wales, they cut the firefighting budget by, yeah. I think, 35%, mm. just two weeks before these fires. So they want to tell us it's not a political event. It's very much a political event. Yeah, exactly. Our across the world. So, so in Lebanon, um, you've got family over there, I believe, mm-hmm. and people kind of sure involved do. in uh, in. In some of this, what are some of the stories that they've been telling you? Yeah, well, shout out to my cousin, Nizar. Um, he was one of the people involved in actually the first protest that sparked off the whole thing. Um, the protest was called by a group Lihaqi, which is like a kind of liberal human rights organization um, trying to build um, a non-sectarian, progressive, broadly politics in Lebanon. Um, and they called a demonstration against um, the government's um, neoliberal tax reforms Um uh, and it exploded from there. And since then, you've seen um, massive protests motivated by kind of, you know, deep-seated cynicism with the government and the frustration of a government which purports to represent the people, but in effect is just enriching itself at the expense of the people. Um, and one of the really notable things of this protest movement is that it's not just been in Beirut, which is where the traditional kind of civil society, smaller liberal type organizations and movements have been strong but has actually spread to the working-class cities of Trablus or Tripoli in the north, Sur in the south, Saida. Um, uh, so for the first time, you see this national political movement um, uh, challenging um, all, the, all the political leaders, um, not just one particular political party or individual. And the issue of sectarianism has obviously been a big thing historically and the role of Hezbollah and all of that mm-hmm. in Lebanon. Um 
you wrote in Red Flag about how one of the most popular slogans at the moment is down with everyone means everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the um, Arabic version is. Yani, yeah. So, um, so in that way, um, I guess the people have kind of rejected this idea that they need to pick one of the leaders on offer or parties on offer. And actually that, yeah, everyone means everyone. Like anyone who's involved in politics, you're all corrupt, you're all fucked. Like we want to get rid of all of you. That's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, I mean, in Lebanon, the whole history of the political system is 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 one of sectarian divisions. I mean, every country has its racism or kind of racial divide or whatever, religious divide. But Lebanon's um, entire system is designed to entrench and institutionalize these divisions. It's sort of it's sort of like the a Christian version of Israel. Um, Christians were granted um, privileges. Um, of course, this only really flowed through to ruling class Christians. Um, and Muslims were like less represented, and, and but every religious group has a position guaranteed it, or numerous positions guaranteed it into the state system, um, uh, and so this basically sets up political leaders as gatekeepers or you know representatives for those religious communities um, in the state and in and in business um, circles, and so this creates real difficulties for people who want to organise outside these um, structures, um, and so the fact that we've seen these protests expanding across the country. Uh, is really significant, and the 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 political leaders have. It's not as if sectarianism dissolves uh, as soon as um, these protests have emerged. So political leaders have tried to play off um, uh, groups against each other, have tried to um, introduce reforms, uh, and they've treated protesters differently in different areas um, in order to try and create divisions. Um, and actually, um, some of the right wing Christian parties were. Um, some of them resigned very early on in order to say that they were on the side of the people and it was actually Hezbollah and Amal and um, the kind of forces aligned with um, the March 8 movement, which were um, really the ones who were the problem, whereas the progressive pro-Western, pro-Saudi March 14 side were, were, were sympathetic. So all these games are still being played, but the fact that you have protesters in, in mostly Sunni areas like in Trablus chanting in support of people in mostly Shiite areas in the south um, it, it's it's really wonderful and significant, and I think reflects um, the deep seated anger at, at neoliberalism and, and and corruption in Lebanon. And in a similar way, in Iraq, I guess the question of sectarianism, which is introduced in the you know by the West by the imperialist powers mm. and the interventions in in the Iraq wars from the nineties onwards, really stirred up and so on. That now is again being questioned in the course of struggle. So it's sort of you know the 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 um the Marxist classics of like divisions breaking down when you have a common enemy um is on display there as well. So Absolutely. so there's a, a lot of really positive signs. I think one of the mainstream kind of um questions is who is leading all of these struggles because it's mm. not like in each of these cases there is yeah. some obvious political party or an individual or the name of anyone like who can you name in you know most people couldn't name a hong kong protester who's the leader of the hong kong protests or well they might say joshua wong but that's that's, that's all loaded that's a, it, yeah yeah and that, yeah so it's so so there are definitely it seems to be some limitations i mean does that mean how far are things going to go i guess is a question i mean I think it's important that we're really excited about these movements and that we're um, uh, fully following them, backing them, learning from them. Um, I think 
just before we get onto the limitations, one of the points I'd like to make about these movements is the issue of democracy has been really front and center um, in, in all of them. And this is interesting because you would expect that to be the case in um, places which like Hong Kong or, or Sudan, Algeria, where democracy doesn't, doesn't exist in any meaningful sense. But the fact that even in, even in France, even in Lebanon, Iraq, um, Chile, uh, the issue of democracy is being held up front and center is a really positive sign. It shows that people can see that the political institutions that capitalism has created for us don't actually represent us, even though they pretend to. So that's a real positive. In terms of the limits, I mean, I think one big limit is um, the, the historically weak level of class struggle that all these movements are kind of uh, having to, to deal with. Um, now, this is clearly different from country to country, um, but... But in general, the working class movement is at a low point. Um, uh, and what, what does this mean in practical terms? Because obviously Marxists talk about the working class a lot. It means that when you want to shut down a society, you want to put pressure on a government, one of the most effective ways of doing that is to withdraw labor, to shut down the economy. Um, at the moment, it's, it's quite hard to do that. Um, and in fact, in, in France, for example, the unions were quite hostile to the Yellow Vest movement and refused to um, coordinate days of action, which meant that the government could more easily isolate and segment the protesters off. So, for example, the, the weakness of the union movement globally uh, is one big limit on, on these movements. But on the other hand, a, a lot of these mass protests are sort of by default creating a withdrawal of labour. I mean, that's sort of mm. partly what's mm. happened in Hong Kong a bit and in Chile. It's not like the union leadership have called people out. People have just been on the street fighting so they're not at work. Mm. So, there's, so then there's that knock-on effect and... There could be, you know, there could be some more organic ways, I guess, that people start to realise their class power through, not through some class organised resistance, but totally. through the kind of pro-democracy, anti-government, anti-austerity, anti-neoliberalism politics leads you to think about where your power lies. Absolutely. I mean, in Lebanon, one creative way they found of, of organising because um, they did have a formal strike um, and, and it was quite successful. But then one way of imposing a strike on society when they lacked the kind of working class organization to do so was through the blocking of roads. Um, and just by blocking the major highways in and out of Beirut and major roads within Beirut, they were able, and, and all the you know major cities of Lebanon, they were able to effectively shut down. So the, the creativity of these movements is truly incredible. But I do think still in terms of, okay, so shutting down, but then also beginning to construct a counter power. Um, the fact that the protest movements are overwhelmingly, they see themselves as acting as individual citizens rather than as workers, um, organized as workers, um, means that it's both difficult, more difficult to um, cause disruption of the level that would require, uh, you would require to make substantial reform, but also more difficult to construct counter institutions that could begin to pose a fundamental threat to the way in which capitalism in these countries is organized. I think there's also even when they're not seeing themselves as, as, as individuals, to the extent they see themselves as a collective force, it's just the people, mm. you know? So you see that dynamic a lot, say in Hong Kong, you know, and it's specifically, and that has quite, can have quite negative consequences, you know, because one of the things that's growing there at the moment is this kind of hostility towards, towards mainland Chinese people who actually should be their allies. And you see similar things in a lot of these other struggles where it becomes a kind of national, a national struggle or whatever. Historically, of course, that's always been the case, but it's sort of, um, yeah, it's it sort of once again shows the pressing need for for an organised, coherent class politics to actually take form. And the other big challenge, of course, is all of the repression that is being mm. rained down upon Absolutely. them, which is the other kind of 
the other side of the internationalism of, of the struggle and the amazing stuff that you see with people learning from, you know, how to deal with tear gas from Hong Kong yeah. and all the sort of manuals and things that are being passed around, how to make a shield out of a McDonald's tray or whatever, you know, like um, there's that internationalism on the side that we want to win. And then the kind of inter- the, the commonalities of the militarized police, the role mm-hmm. of the armed forces, if necessary, all of yep. that kind of stuff. Um, is extremely well organised and getting more and more organised. I mean, even in Australia, we saw in the wake of the IMARC blockade, this suddenly on the news on, on Channel 7 with these videos of the cops training with like rolling tear gas along That's a right. bloody suburban street. And the like, front page of The yeah. Age today had a, had a story which, which said that Daniel Andrews, the, the Premier of Victoria, has actually given the police the power to um, turn on and off their, cam- their body cameras whenever they want and also to edit the footage. So the police, and, and, and finally, to withhold footage from people they're prosecuting. So the police get to turn on and off cameras, modify, manipulate footage and use that in court with no right of the defendant to have access to the original un- it unmodified It fucking mockery of the whole yeah. thing. Like yeah. the whole point of... Campaigning for cameras in the first place is to say, oh, so we can see what happens. Well, I mean, giving them the power to edit the footage or turn it off and off or on when when they want to is actually the best way to stop them putting fascist stickers over the camera. So it's it's actually an anti-fascist. It's a very sophisticated <laughs> oh, anti-fascist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm giving you a symbol Thanks, to say. Okay, no, I'm not. <laughs> The ruling class, when we think about neoliberalism, um, it's hard to see a way out without just continuing to with that kind of repression and austerity. Like, there's no fat in the system. There's no mm. way that you can see, and especially when you think about the the way that climate change interacts with all of this kind of stuff, the mining of resources, the all of the stuff, the places where profit has been... Um, stolen from people's lives under capitalism and the earth where you know there's very little left to take so yeah it's it's not a great picture (laughs) looking at what are the options of the ruling class in response to this it's not going to be you know here have some money and calm down well that's the thing i mean these revolts are happening in a as liam pointed out in a situation of you know 40 50 years of, of of neoliberalism which is just a fancy way of saying class war um, by the rich against workers. Um, and the fact that the economic situation is shaky, to say the least, means that um, we shouldn't expect that ref- like reforms, progressive reforms, you know, good reforms, will be easy to win. Um, and so I think on one level, repression and further attacks are what the ruling class has, you know. And, and this reflects what happened in the Great Depression. I mean... Uh, the Great Depression, largely, you know, was was a time of massive attacks on the working class, driving down living standards, making workers pay for a crisis caused by um, banks and bosses, um, and and really the only thing that turned that around uh, was World War Two and the preparations, the m- massive rearmament process that took place there. So I'm not sure if we want that. I don't think we'll survive World War Three. I don't um, so, think we want that. No, I was just a gut feeling. <laughs> So um, I don't think we should uh, be too... Um, th- there's a theory out there that um, capitalism is going to make a Keynesian turn and that 
the ruling class will of its own volition decide to um, begin implementing um, demand-side reforms, uh, which is uh, means you know giving money to workers and the poor in order to stimulate the economy. I think I think that's pretty fanciful. Mm-hmm. I think um, any Keynesianism that emerges today will be you know typical bourgeois Keynesianism, which may mean stimulating the military-industrial complex, but will mean nothing good for working-class people. So I think that means that these movements are going to keep happening um, uh, and keep keep exploding. They're unpredictable, um, uh, but I think there is every reason to have hope as well because of the creativity and courage shown by millions of people all around the world is something that um, you have to take seriously and, and learn from as a revolutionary activist. And the people themselves, you know, you learn a lesson as an individual, as a collective, as a group, as an organisation through every kind of cycle of, of struggle that you're involved in. And that means that next time you're more organised and you know not to take the bullshit or you know what the police might do to you or whatever it is. And that's something that I think builds an in Chile. That's sort of a thing. Definitely. With the student movement from 2006 and all the lessons from that and the people that were organising in their high schools then are now organising in their universities or their workplaces. So... That kind of um, those lessons definitely continue to make the movement stronger. You see it really clearly in in Sudan as well, where um, so many people earlier this year, when the revolution really broke out there, uh, so many people were saying, you know, we are the continuation of the Arab Spring, and we're not gonna like we saw what went wrong in Egypt, and we're yeah. gonna get it right this time. You know, those lessons are being learned around the world. They can't fucking win forever. Yeah, that that amazing. Um kind of banner that they had in Sudan with like yeah, the lists right. of revolutions in history. And it was like, we will not let it go the same way as this. And, you know, things ebb and flow, like, and often just go off our radar or it's hard to kind of find out what's happening. You think something's maybe died away or there's bad news or whatever, and then suddenly it comes back again. And I think we can see that in, in the Middle East and in North Africa in particular. Yeah, I mean, one of the really frustrating things about the state of the world is that um, the left is so weak, the revolutionary left in particular, um, and that really sets a limit to how far things can go. Um, and, and you can think about that, and, and it means the ruling class can be more flexible and um, you know they have more ways of conning us because there's less people who have read history and know what might, might be coming. Um, but one of the things that um, is inspiring is, is precisely that point, that um, people are self-educating and making, um, drawing conclusions from previous experiences. And I think Hong Kong and Chile um, draw this out the most dramatically. In Hong Kong, you've now had two cycles. Um, In Chile, three, 2006, 2011 or 12. Um, 12, I think it was. Um, uh, Where each time you have a radicalization that's deeper and more more kind of lasting than the the previous. and one of the stories that I learned from a Chilean comrade of ours um, uh, just last week was that actually um, the Dockers Union in Chile, um, especially the branch in Valparaíso, uh, has been really notable for taking um, radical action in support of the, the protests very early on. And, and one of the reasons for that is that actually this union was consciously intervened into by um, radicalizing students from 2006 in the aftermath um, to try and radicalize it. They salted it, um, to use terminology from the US. And and they've actually captured that union, that branch of the union, and are now um, have enormous sway. And so we're able to use their leverage over the strategic sector of um, the economy and, and, and working class in order to uh, magnify the protest movement and give it real kind of 
institutional backing. And I think that's the kind of thing that revolutionary forces can do. And so I think um, for for listeners and for people around the world, um, you may not be in a revolutionary situation, but the more you can prepare, the more you can um, cohere a revolutionary kind of network of activists, um, the more likely you are to be able to play a useful role when this kind of thing comes to your town. Yeah, and the, and the hard work and I'm sure the many times when people involved, you know, in that struggle to kind of get control of that union felt like, oh, you know, when is this ever going to kind of turn into something or all of the little tiny fights that you have to have with people or the debates that you have to have about reformism over and over and over again and point to the lessons of history over and over again and have people say, oh, no, it will be different this time. You know, all of that work is so important for laying the basis for um, being able to take these struggles even further um, in the right direction. Totally. And because one of the other things that's happening in Chile in particular, I mean, Chile is the real high point of these movements, I think, and the one that's probably um, deserves, well, they all deserve attention, but deserves a lot of attention. Um, In Chile, we've also seen the revitalization of the reformist left. Um, So many of the autonomous sort of um, activists from the previous cycles, some of them have built radical forces. Many others have defaulted back towards reformism. And so the Frente Amplio in particular has played a big role or is trying to play a big role in demobilizing the street. Similarly, the Communist Party, um, they've controlled the University Students Union uh, in, in Chile um, for, for many years. And um, one of the main leaders of the 2012 protest movement, Camila Vallejo, um, she famously rode that movement into parliament and was seen as a as a traitor by many on the left. She is now one of the major voices of the Communist Party, advocating moderation and calm and, and you know, in, in, a, in a left way, but essentially trying to stabilize the situation. So radicalizations and rebellions don't simply um, automatically um, advantage the revolutionary left. They also allow other forces to, to regroup um, who can be a threat to the movement's longevity. So I think, you know, intervention and agency is crucial in all these scenarios. And there's so much potential for that. You hear, I hear these stories from Chile about uh, both the Communist Party and the Front Amplio being booed out of these kind of, you know, mass meetings of workers or mass meetings of pro- mass protests and things, you know, and they're sort of booed off stage. So there's that, that's, that speaks to that kind of cynicism and that fed upness yeah. with all of the establishment. You know, you could take the slogan from Lebanon about everyone means everyone. You could put it in Chile as well in that, in that way, you know. Uh, that's another thing that links all this stuff, that sort of cynicism and you know, fed upness with, with the mainstream parties. But it also uh, shows, again, the kind of vacuum that needs to be filled. That, yeah. As Omar said, like, there's, there's a need for sort of political organization and political leadership in these, in these, in these environments. And it could go either way. You know, it could be right-wing force, left-wing force, whatever. Um, but it sort of it, it highlights that. The other thing that I've heard recently from Chile... Uh, was about these, I, I can't remember the Spanish name for it, but these councils that have emerged that, that cart back to the sort of anti-colonial struggle. Um, and they're sort of these kind of popular kind of organizing committees for the protest, um, which, uh, again, one of the Chilean comrades was saying is has been a very useful development for the revolutionary left there to be able to intervene into. Mm. Because it's very hard, he made the point, it's very hard, almost impossible to intervene into a street brawl <laughs> with a coherent political, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, we've got this manifesto, you know. Uh, but yeah, whereas the, the sort of popular forums uh, give gives the space for, for organised revolutionary Perhaps left to actually intervene into. political discussion and debate, yeah. Something there should be more of all of the time, everywhere. Totally. Um, the, other, the other reason that that's important is because the, the stakes are quite high, you know, when you, when you play a revolution, you play a mass, you know, rebellion, uh, 
the stakes the stakes get massively raised. And so we're seeing in Bolivia now. Um, uh, this, we shouldn't not we we have to mention it. I mean, there's basically been a coup. There is a coup unfolding as we speak, um, where the police have been protesting against a government, where the military has asked the government to step down, uh, which is being reported very neutrally by global media. But this is actually a coup. Um, and he, the, the president's house has been raided by police and trashed. So in a situation of, um, of global crisis, where we have forces of the far right growing, uh, where we have capitalists worried about their profit rates and so on, um, these movements, uh, they have to play to win. And the only way they can win is if there's a sizable revolutionary left that can offer some guidance and leadership. Um, and, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Absolutely. And that's a very somber note to end on, but there's also a lot of fucking great things to keep um, up with and people obviously will be doing that. And we're planning on having a special episode on Chile in particular to get into some of the history and, and the politics of that. So keep your ears out for that one to come around. And thank you very much, Omar, for joining us Thanks today. For us. Thanks, Liam, again. Uh, no Liam worries. is also our producer, I should say. Working the dials so, here. Uh, thanks for that. And um, we'll catch you again next time on Red Flag Radio.